And then at the end, when you know he was getting it to go and everyone else was leaving, I just said, Charlie, can we have a quick chat? I've got an idea to run by you. He went, yeah, sure. So we just sat in this room and said, look, um, have you, what's your thoughts on, you know, doing a new edition of Call of Cthulhu? It's been, you know, over 10 years or more since Sixth Edition came out. And um, is that something you're even contemplating? He went, yeah, absolutely, yeah, could you do it? And that was the conversation. <laughs> That's so what we he went, said. <laughs> yeah. Because again, he, he, I guess he knew us. He knew we had the pas- passion to do it. And and I and I think maybe we were just lucky that we were the first people to ask him. I don't know. Maybe if it'd been somebody else, they'd, they'd isn't be that something? For the past three plus decades, there's been two games that have dominated the RPG world. Of course, Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu. It's October, time to think spooky things. So not only are we going to be premiering Call of Cthulhu on our Twitch channel, but I got a chance to sit down with Mike Mason, the person in charge of Call of Cthulhu over at Chaosium, one of the people that brought us the most recent 7th edition. You might be surprised how he got the gig. Make sure you stick around to the end. We cover some thoughts on how to run a Call of Cthulhu game. Also, make sure you scroll down to the show notes. This is the 40th anniversary of Call of Cthulhu. And I've got links to some really neat things that Chaosium is doing to celebrate it. Anyway, we'd like you to sit back, don't get too comfortable, and enjoy my time with Mike Mason. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Mike Mason, creative director, editor, and lead writer for Call of Cthulhu at Chaosium. Mike is the award-winning co-writer of several great RPG books, including the Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition Keeper's Rulebook and Pulp Cthulhu, and that's just to name a few. So Mike, welcome to the third floor. Uh, Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. I'm looking forward to it. So um, as we're going to see, and for listeners, um, for the few people that are listening that may not be aware of it, uh, Mike's uh, geek cred is, pr- is pretty impressive. Um, and we're going to kind of get into all of that. But before we do, at some point, Mike, you did not realize you could roll dice, play with miniatures, grab a piece of paper and pretend to be somebody else. And then all of a sudden, someone introduced it to you or you were exposed to it. Do you mind going back to that and give me your kind of gaming origin story? Sure. Um Prior, well, pre-RPG, you know, this, in terms of I, I, I always loved board games. And, but obviously, when I was growing up, board games meant Monopoly and Cluedo. Um, the best, it's not really a board game, but the best game I ever had pre-RPG was Jaws, the game, where, where you, had <laughs> okay. a big, you, had a, you had a big plastic shark, with, and its jaws were spring-loaded, and you filled the mouth, up, open mouth, with lots of kind of plastic junk, like a wheels and anchors and things and you had a hook and you took turns to hook something out of the mouth of the shark and of course when you when the when the, the weight got too low the jaw would snap its jaws shut and you would lose you know you'd be the losing player 
that was I got that uh, for a, a Christmas present uh, many years ago, and that that as a side note started my lifelong obsession with Jaws the film. But that's <laughs> a, that's a that's a completely different story. However, to get to the point, um, RPG. Uh, so I I knew nothing about role playing games, and uh, I had a friend at school. Uh, I, I I'm trying to think of how old I would be. This would probably be sometime around. 1980, 79, 80. It's very foggy and misty and going back 40 years. Um, <laughs> he had a birthday party and it invited me to his birthday party. And that's all I knew. And I turned up expecting it to be like every other kind of, you know, whatever, 10, 11 year old, 12 birthday party. Uh, and it wasn't. It was basically six people, including his brother and his brother's mate, who were the old, older, older than right. us sat around the kitchen table with, with I, I didn't know what it was. It basically, they had these really cool miniatures of like skeletons and wizards and some kind of cardboard floor pans. And uh, I was told we were going to play this game called Dungeons and Dragons. And that, that's, I knew, knew nothing about it. And wow. then for the next um, like two or three hours, we, we you know, well, me and him fumbled our way through being told, no, roll that dice, roll, roll high, roll high. And... Um, <laughs> I, I just all I seem to remember. I can only remember that we kept meeting loads of skeletons because I think that was really the only miniatures they had, and <laughs> um, and and it was it was just great fun, and we were really into it. And of course, it was his brother's friend who was who owned the miniatures and and stuff, and he had to go home, <laughs> and we all wanted to carry on playing. So then there was a big argument about, well, you not can you not just leave your miniatures and we can carry on playing? Because obviously, it never entered our heads that you could play without miniatures obviously right. we need the miniatures to play and so we managed to twist his arm and he left the miniatures with us so we could play for another hour before we all went home and That's that was cool. that was the first thing um i ever played and um i didn't really understand what was going on but i just knew i loved it and yeah. I, I loved the miniatures the miniatures were like 50 percent of the, my enjoyment was looking at the miniatures how cool they were and um the other 50 percent was just the craziness of you know i'm a wizard i cast magic and you know these <laughs> these skeletons that don't seem to die keep coming back and um and that was that really and um very um fortuitous my history teacher who was a great history teacher called phil simmons um was a gamer he, but he was an old school you know he was a war gamer and um he and he actually started a games club pretty much around oh. about that same time so nice um and so what he would do, I don't know, it was, it was literally kind of like, here, the first ones are free. He, he would go off to, he would say, <laughs> I'm, I'm going off to London this weekend. And then when he would turn up at the, the, the games club the following, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, he'd have all these, you know, really early Citadel miniatures he'd bought in their packets. And like, I bought all these. These are all spares I don't want. And I'm selling them. So who would like an ogre? 60p. And, <laughs> and we would just gather around and like, you know, you know, almost like uh, auctioning. I mean, we weren't auctioning, but it was like, no, I, I really want the yoga. And no, you've already bought one. He has to have one. And, oh, that's and being funny. very teachery. And so, um, and so there was a real, you know, it's a great little after school club of there was kind of uh, historical kind of simple war games going on. Lots of D&D. And um, very occasionally some, you know, one of the older guys would, 
wandering with, I bought this thing called Traveller. Let's play this. <laughs> and I mean, that's probably, and may, maybe somebody tried Ringquest. I don't know. But I mean, it was mainly, it was mainly, you know, keep on the boardlands and palaces of silver princess and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and that's really, and that, and that's how I learned. And that's how I understood this was a bigger hobby than just, you know, somebody's kitchen table, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, you know, there were, there were dedicated shops to this you could, you know, go to. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was my start. Wow. So, um, you're, you're, you're young, young teens at that point, um, as you're finishing secondary school, uh, did your interest maintain that whole time? And as you went to university, did it maintain, or did you ever kind of lose interest? No. Well, um, at school, what happened? I, um, I changed schools. I actually moved away. The family moved away. We moved to a new area. The first day in my new school, the kind of the the the, the uh, students, my uh, my uh, form tutor, uh, kind of put me in. You know, you look after him and show him the ropes, kind of thing. Um, he, he, he within about five minutes of talking, he got on to talking about D and D, and I'm like, well, I like D and D. Suddenly, like we were like now best friends forever, and we instant D and D group sorted. So I had no. Um, and and that, then that led us to start up a role playing club in the school and you know this wow. new school. Um, so all through my um, you know school into uh, into what we would call the sixth form high school at your side, it, you know I was role playing every week. I was I, I was in fact running the role playing club by then uh, and encouraging new people to play. Um, then I went to university and studied um, theatre and drama, and that's when I stopped um, because. Um, it was a bit weird acting all day and then <laughs> role playing acting at night. And it kind of, it couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have the headspace for all that acting. I needed, you know, some time off. So I didn't really do any role play um, over the three years of university and just focused on um, drama, acting, directing, and drinking beer mainly. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, but once I left university and I started work, I had, it was really weird. I would still pop into the game shop to just keep an eye, you know, because I still liked it, but I just wasn't right. really playing. Um, and I had this penny drop when I was working. I suddenly like, for the first time in my life, I have disposable income. I can buy role <laughs> playing games. Wow. So I did. I, went, I then went and bought them and then uh, rang up all my old school friends and said, right, let's get playing. And so we just continued um, where we left off playing um, a bit of D and D. And but to be honest, by then you know we'd already been playing Call of Cthulhu for I don't know where are we now? Nearly ten years. Wow. And um, you know, and so it was very natural, and it was all our favourite games. So it was very natural. Although we kind of kicked off again with a bit of D and D. We we very quickly just went back to playing Call of Cthulhu and uh, and you know picking up the the new material that had come out over the last few years and, and giving that a go because both myself and uh, another f- friend of mine in that group, Dave, um, we both would GM basically. So we'd just take turns, you know, David buy the Spawn of Azathos box set. So he'd run that, I'd buy whatever it is, I don't know, Manchester Madness and right. I'd run that kind of thing. We'd just take turns and we, we just love Call of Cthulhu. So we did play other things, you know, we'd have a break and we'd play whatever games workshop had released that month on license or put out like car wars or yeah. judge judge dread the role-playing game or that kind of thing but we'd always go back to Cthulhu. that was our main game in that in that sense 
So I'd be interested, Mike, you know, obviously, you know, we know how this story leads to where you are now, right? Um, which which uh, colors it a little bit. But looking back as adult Mike looks back to young adult Mike and your your draw to how you kept like, you know, gravitating back to Call of Cthulhu. Do you have a sense what it was back then that made you guys decide that was your favorite game and what drew you back to it consistently? Um, I think we were all tired of d and I think we, yeah. we got to a point where you know, we enjoyed D&D, but what, I know the group of people I, I, I hung around with, we really like fiction and films and we you know we'd, we'd swap books and we'd go see films and, and it was the stories. It was the story. And, and, and D&D has never particular. I mean, you know, I know you can create stories in D&D, right. but it's not been built on stories. It's a, it's a dynamic kind of action-based game that's about, yeah. A sequence of events it's not a story in the same way it's not got a plot in the same way that the call of cthulhu uh, scenario did or has um and we lo- and we like the we love the plotting and we loved the whole it, for us it wasn't just the game it was everything that went with it it was discovering not only lovecraft's writing but all of the lovecraft circle so we right. would, we would go out together to book fairs and we would track down secondhand bookshops in other towns and get on the train and spend a day haunting second-hand bookshops to, to try and dig dig out, you know, hard to find at that time, uh, books by Clark Ashton Smith and Robert Block and Robert E. Howard and, and yeah. anyone else. Anything to slightly kind of touch on the mythos. We, we were kind of book collectors as well. So it was the whole kind of kit and caboodle that really kind of fired us up. Um, and for me personally, I mean, before I even gamed, I was into horror books and sci-fi. I had a second-hand bookshop uh, literally around the corner from where, you know, where I lived as a fairly young child. And I would spend all my time in the secondhand bookshop. And so I, you know, I, I, to this day, I still hit myself going like, why didn't I buy? Cause I, I now know what the books I was looking at. Right. I only remember, <laughs> I only remember their covers. And but now I know that, you know, yes, they had nearly enough, everything ever written by Clark Ashton Smith there. But oh. I, I looked and with, and with like, Oh, they're really cool covers. But, I wasn't. I didn't know what they were, so I didn't. So I ended up buying Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and and people that I kind of knew or, or were like authors I had heard. And um, so I kicked myself to say that I had access to all of these books and never bought them. But uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I, I I was into that and um, and um, I loved Hammer films, horror films, and. Um, and it was just a natural, you know, D&D was great. It was kind of, oh, that's all fun. And then when I found Call of Cthulhu, it was like, this is what I've been looking for. This is, you know, I've always been into, you know, uh, horror fiction and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, as a teenager buying in the UK, there was a, a serialized part work called The Unexplained, which is all about, you know, real life ghost stories and mysteries. And I bought all of those. And and it was just the you know the amalgamation of that into this is all about all the things I like, so that's kind of how it kind of cemented for me, I guess. That's fantastic. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators, and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. And we're going to do that with Mike today. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about pre-Chaosium Mike. Mike did a lot before he came to Chaosium and I want to talk and learn about that. We'll be right back. That was fantastic, Mike. Thank you. No worries. 
right. Um, so I listed a couple things on here, Mike. Um, that doesn't yeah. mean we have to talk about everyone. It doesn't mean that it's, if it's not listed there, I don't want to talk about it. But essentially, um, I'd like to get an idea of when you started producing, right? Started making stuff for games. Yeah. And then maybe we'll try to finish up with um, you coming on to Chaosium before we move on to what you've done there. Does that work? Yeah, sure. Sure. Beautiful. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So now that we have an understanding, Mike, of, you know, your love and passion uh, for for role-playing games and for tabletop gaming, um, I'd be curious from a career path, right? So you finished your three years at university. um, Did did you go out and get a quote-unquote real job at that point? Um, What happens next? Yeah, I I graduated from university into one of the UK's ever popular kind of uh, economic declines where there wasn't a lot of work. Um, the uh, Conservative Tory government was still in power and uh, there wasn't a lot of work going for the likes of me with a drama degree. Um, So I very quickly uh, uh, learned about, um, you know, uh, adapting my skill set to things that would be useful in business, which at the end of the day was about promotions and communication and project management, which was all things you learn in theatre, although you don't call them that in theatre. So I got a, I got a job working in a uh, an adult training agency, effectively uh, working in their marketing department to support um, young people going into um, training, basically post education. Uh, so that was my kind of day job, and I, I worked in uh, that kind of education slash training sphere, you know, for different companies over the over the course of my career, really, uh, and normally in either sort of a it's always been a hybrid of marketing and project management. You know, I kind of, I, I'm one of those people I tend to get, I tend to get um, bits of jobs added to mine as I go. It's one of the things <laughs> of being, being vaguely competent at some things. Um, so, I, so I, of course, as part of that, I did a lot of copywriting. I also did, a, I also looked after PR for a, a number of companies. So, you know, I was writing press releases and, uh, direct marketing and all sorts of things like that and working with designers um uh, working with freelance designers all the time uh, on various campaigns and projects which is all kind of you know as you know what i'm going to say which is all great foundational work for yeah. understanding how to publish a book or <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing so uh, that was all happening in the in my spare time i was just gaming uh and then two things happened um I decided uh, I, I, I was going to a lot of UK conventions uh, and I was running Call of Cthulhu games and I met a few other people that were running Call of Cthulhu games and I liked what they were doing and um, I was always being asked by the people that ran the various conventions, could you run more Cthulhu, could you run more Cthulhu? And uh, I was like, well, I can't because I can only run so many, there's only one of me. And I had the brainwave as if I could get a bunch of people together who were kind of good Call of Cthulhu uh you know gms and got us together then we could go in mass to a show when we could run loads of cthulhu and do what you know we were being asked to do so um i had a chat with a few people and uh i ended up kind of forming something called the cult of keepers uh which was literally that it was a bunch of call of cthulhu uh, keepers who wrote convention scenarios we shared them amongst ourselves and then we all ran them at different shows around the UK and some in Europe as well. Um, so that how, happened. How big, did, how big did that group get, Mike? Um, it, it, it wasn't massive. We, it was, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember now, I think maybe eight, 
I mean, at times there are eight or ten. Okay, um, so a some, decent sized group. So sometimes when when we had um, back in the day, we used to have UK Gen Con, and obviously that was the biggest show in the UK at the time. So I would actually get more people in for that one on a kind of um, a one off basis. So they would only come to that show. So I kind of recruit them for that. So sometimes it would be bigger than ten, but uh, but normally around that kind of eight to ten size was the kind of the uh, the hardcore of the group. Um, so that that was something on one side. Yeah, I'd be curious. So you know, in a lot of ways, being a GM can be a very isolated process, right? Where you're kind of on your own. Now, a lot's changed since the internet came and, you know, it's not quite the same anymore. But back then, you know, you'd be kind of doing your thing. Um, And I'd be curious, now that you're getting these people together, all of you run Call of Cthulhu and you're grouped together and it sounds somewhat handpicked by you because of the quality of the game they run. Um, How much learning was happening there for you? Were you picking up ideas and things? I mean, did it end up being a a collaborative growth as a group? Yeah, it's... um... At the end of the day, you're absolutely right. I did handpick the kind of people based on my experience of watching them run games at convention. Also, feedback to me from people I knew who had played in their games that they had had a good game. Um, and initially, what would happen is I would just say, "Well, you write scenarios, send them in. I will, I will read them, and if I think they're up to it, then I will add in, I'll add them into the mix of scenarios available this year." So uh, a lot of people. Uh, I mean, one of the people was Paul Fricker, who co-wrote oh, wow. Call of Cthulhu with me. Um, so Paul, I, I met Paul through this, you know. No and, kidding. Um, and Paul will tell you, uh, you know, if you ever end up chatting to him as well, he will tell you that, you know, he was he was very conscious of wanting to do his best work so he could get into the Cult of Keepers and have its scenarios, you know. So, he, you know, so people kind of wanted to, you know, to kind of show off in a way. Um, and as as we got more experience and we worked together more and we understood the different kind of styles of GMing, because, you know, that's one of the attractions with the group with that, you know, you have different people running things and you could, you could kind of understand what kind of game you would get from the different people in the group. Um, we would, we would get together once or twice a year and we would share ideas and we would work on scenarios collaboratively. We, we you know, somebody would say, I've got this scenario idea. I think it's really cool, but I'm kind of, I, I don't know where it's going or I can't yeah. think what to do with it. And we would just kind of freeform it. We'd kind of not really play it. We'd kind of play right. it, you know, verbally. We'd just talk it through, throw yeah. in ideas. So the person writing it could go, well, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've got some ideas now. I can see. And they would then go away and, you know, write it themselves. But so there was a kind of collaborative side to it as well, which was, um, which was very amazing. useful. Um, and, and did you, did you, collect these and are they hiding somewhere now or i mean it sounds like some an an amazing collection was being put together by all by this group yeah i mean we (laughs) there's there's a bunch of scenarios the um which is kind of like important which actually leads into the next bit really which is um i i started a fanzine called the whisperer for call of cthulhu really uh initially the intention was to put these scenarios in the fanzine um, but things never quite work out how you imagine them, and they end up being <laughs> lots of other things that went to the fanzine, and they start, you know, these stars didn't end up going in the fanzine. Occasionally, we would at UK conventions kind of put some together and kind of do some kind of photocopy booklets um, yeah. and just sell them at cost to, to you know, just literally a handful. And so, so the handful of those knocking around, probably fairly rare, I imagine. Um, and... Um, 
and they kind of got put on the side. Uh, and so, but they did end, some of them did end up in a, in publication. Wow. Um, in fact, Cubicle 7's very first Call of Cthulhu book, which is called Cthulhu Britannica, is a bunch of scenarios um, that, I put, that I basically edited together in a book for them, which, which are all scenarios from the Call to Keepers, more or less. Um, <laughs> and uh, we just kind of, I just kind of picked some of the most bizarre ones that would be kind of cool. And so, so they are, you know, so some of them, you know, very, a small proportion are, are available in that, in that format. Um, but by then I, I kind of um, started the Whisperer and that was, that was, you know, that ran from about um, 1999 to around the early 2000s, so 2003, I think. It's only five issues, like one issue a year, really, because I just couldn't fit any more in. Um, but that was just a, a fanzine devoted to Call of Cthulhu. And mainly, at the re- and the main reason I did that was the um, in the UK we had Dagon uh, fanzine that was fantastic and uh, had been running throughout the kind of uh, you know late eighties, early nineties, and then that had, that has ceased. And uh, in the US there had been the Unspeakable Oath, and that kind of had gone on a hiatus as well. So mm-hmm. there was no kind of fan publications for Call of Cthulhu at that time. And I did sit around waiting for someone to do that. And of course, nobody did. So I kind of went, well, I'll, I'll have to do it then. And so um, I kind of did this, you know, small, uh, small run, little fanzine of scenarios and articles. I mean, you know, I look back now in terms of some of the people that contributed, that, you know, that, that you know, got on to do stuff themselves as, you know, Brian Sammons, who's a well-known Call of Cthulhu author, Jeff yeah. Moller. Torin Atkinson, lead singer of the uh, Darkest Hillside Thickets, an artist. Dave Allstock, who um, is one of the you know creative you know geniuses behind SLA Industries. Uh, Paul Carrick, <laughs> the artist. Adam Crossingham, who went on to form the Six of Same Press for you know doing Cthulhu licensed product. So so you know, and a bunch of other people. So so it's kind of like a, you know, so it was great to you know, in the and and of course doing that was kind of my kind of learning exercise in terms of how to put gaming material together and edit right. gaming material um, and, um, and you know, very early kind of idea of you know, how to lay out, you know, how to lay something out and how to get it to print and how to distribute it, how to sell it to a distributor yeah. and all that kind of thing. You know, it was all kind of learning, you know, on the, on the go. Um, and through doing that, you know, I, I obviously had a relationship with Kersium to, because obviously I, you know, uh, told them I'm doing this fanzine, and they said they basically they basically came back and said, uh, do, "Do you owe us any money?" And I went, "No, because I I haven't made any." <laughs> <laughs> well, I was about to say, I was about to say, I would assume you're you know you're still doing your quote unquote day job at this point because yeah. from my understanding, you don't get to make a small fortune with a fanzine. No, it was literally covering costs. So um, yeah, but um, but no, I obviously had a, had a relationship with Lynn Willis, who was the um, uh, line manager for Call of Cthulhu at Kersium and Charlie Crank and and um, and I would I would although Lynn never went to conventions it was only Charlie and Charlie would come to Europe to conventions in the UK and in Europe so I would get to meet him we got to got to know each other um, and um, and so uh, occasionally from there I was offered you know some freelance work for Kersium either writing something normally it was editing stuff it was um, 
you know, there'd be something written about England in the modern day or the twenties or whatever, and and they all went, "Well, you're English, you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Can you can you look this over for us and just make sure it's you know doesn't sound stupid?" So right. I did a, I did bits bits and pieces for the for for Curzum over the years. Not, nothing great big. I mean, there was a few. We had there was discussions about I was going to write this and I was going to write that, but I just never had the uh, the time to to really do it justice. So I, I you know I didn't want to kind of do a half-assed job. So. Um, were you at that point, um, saying, you know, I really love doing this. This is something that I love and maybe I'd want to move into being more involved with the industry or was it strictly a side thing for you and a hobby thing for you? I'm trying to get a sense of maybe when you started going, you know, maybe I want to do this. Um, I mean, I think to be honest, um, I'd always long thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to work in the games industry? But it was always a wouldn't it be a great idea without any real um, intent behind it? Because it was kind of like, right. well, the American the, the games industry is in America and I live in England and that just doesn't work, you know? And um, so it was all like, it was always a kind of uh, a fantasy, really. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a, it would be lovely to, but that's never going to happen. You know, I should get on yeah. with my day job and pay the mortgage. Yeah. Um, and I should do this as a hobby. Um, and, um, so I, I was working in um, uh, an education um, kind of organization at the time, but I was a bit fed up there. I've been there a few years. And I was ready for a change. It wasn't particularly challenging me anymore. And so I was looking through the, uh, it was the Guardian newspaper, actually, their kind of media jobs. Um, and one day there was a job at Games Workshop wanting an events manager. I went, well, I know. I played Games Workshop games. I know about events oh, I might as well give it a go, you know. And so I, I had no <laughs> expectation about it. And I applied and I was kind of bowled over that I got an interview. Um, and I went up and I, you know, and again, I, because I, I guess I wasn't, you know, I, I don't want to say, I don't mean to sound wrong, but I wasn't impressed by Games Workshop. I was like, it was just another company to me. Sure. I had to make toy soldiers and I thought they were really cool. But in my eyes, it was just a company. And this was a job running events, which is what I'd you know, been paid to do before. Um, so when I did the interview, I was pretty, I wasn't awestruck by the people. I just, <laughs> I just said, well, if you want an event run, this is how you're an event and, and just went to all the logistics. And I got a kind of call about an hour later saying, you've got the job. So, so I, oh, okay, fair enough. So I, I, I went to, I moved and uh, moved the family and we moved up to Nottingham um, and I started Games Workshop on you know, what would, uh, then was called the sales part of the business. So not creative, putting on events, marketing, promotions, all that kind of thing. And um, um, so at that point, I effectively began working in the gaming industry, although it wasn't really <laughs> planned in that way. Um, but obviously, working in Games Workshop uh, is a fantastic um, opportunity to learn about the games industry. And um, and learn about um, you know the different components you know and um, so I was rubbing shoulders with you know the likes of Gav Thorpe and Jervis Johnson and you know I was going flying off to America with those guys too they'd be they'd be the guests at some American show I'd be going to kind of see what the Americans do that I can steal ideas from for the UK <laughs> um, but I, you know I got to know them and and they're, they're great guys and. Um, um, but effectively, for the you know first few years, I mean, the, the I I kind of looked after events and some marketing, and I kind of also uh, 
uh, took on what was the kind of UK community um, kind of activities of uh, Games Workshop, working with schools and libraries, right. and clubs and all that kind of thing. Um, and um, when I was working at Games Workshop, it was the period of the uh, Lord of the Rings was just coming out, um, 40K, uh, Warmer Fantasy. They were the only games, really. They they did. There was a few kind of... Um, you know, small, smaller, older games. Uh, I'm trying to think of things like you know, Warmaster and uh, Necromunda, but they yep. weren't. They were second tier games at that point. We and Games Workshop was very much. We only focus on three things: Warhammer, 40k, and Lord of the Rings, and nothing else. And it's all about tabletop miniatures. And so that was while I was there. But um, towards the um, towards the end, which, well, not towards the end, but. Uh, after a few years, that kind of started to change, and, and that's when Games Workshop re, rebirthed its um, board games and role-playing division called Black Industries, which was part of the, um, the literary arm of Games Workshop Black Library, which obviously did all their fiction novels and comics and things like that. Um, and because obviously everyone knew that I was a role-player, because I didn't, make any, I didn't make a big secret of it, and I was putting out <laughs> The Whisperer at this time as well. Um, oh, wow. So... Um, there was obviously internal playtesting of their new, um, you know, things like Warmer 40, you know, sorry, Warmer Fantasy Second Edition, and then uh, Warmer 40,000, the Dark Heresy RPG. So I um, I was part of the play, you know, I mean, it, was, it went out to everyone who went games, which wasn't anything special, but, but um, so I, you know, I, I kind of playtested stuff and sent information in and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and when um, the 40K one, was being play tested. I, I had some reservations about the direction it was taking, which seemed to me going away from the core of what um, you know, uh, 40k was and uh, and the system and, and so forth. And I and, and it's one of them, you know, fortunate things that the the manager, the overall manager of the uh, Black Library, was my ex manager, basically. So when I said to him, I have some reservations, he listened to me. Whereas you know, I would, I, you know, I was a known factor, so um, it was just kind of a bit of luck on that that regard. So he, he listened to me and said, "Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying." And while you know, while he didn't necessarily do anything about what I said, I raised some flags, and um, and then you know, down the line, there were some changes of direction made, uh, which I guess part of my thing may have inspired or helped to help to uh, stir on perhaps, um, and. Um, then kind of Lord of the Rings lost its, well, not lost its thing, but it kind of, you know, there, there was a downturn in Games yep. Workshop product, which is fairly well known. Uh, and so a lot of the sales businesses were cut, uh, cut down staffing wise. Um, and um, my position was slightly tenuous at that point as well. Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, or uh, as if by magic, a, a head of Black Industries, the manager for the role-playing board games, division uh, became vacant so i applied and got that job so i moved from sales integration and publishing um and that's that was really what you might say is my first full-time real games industry job uh, because i was um i was overseeing the warmer fantasy line that uh, was actually being developed and written by uh green Ronin and um uh, particularly rob schwab 
um, doing the uh, doing the fantasy work. And so I didn't, you know, technically I didn't really need to do a lot because Rob knows what he's doing. He, I was kind just, of, yeah. <laughs> I, I was giving it a once over and basically, you know, Rob would tell me, oh, could you read this over and proofread that kind of stuff? So I was doing all that, but he, he knew what he was doing. So that was all not a problem. Um, but really my main focus was on Dark Heresy, the 40K RPG, which had been kind of, I know, two thirds written when yeah. I joined and we had like, you know, it was like, well, we're supposed to publish it in three months. Can you finish it? Okay. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, I then had like, I, I don't even remember how, how long I had, not very long, uh, to basically finish, finish, read the whole thing, revise it, fill in all the gaps, make wow. sure it actually worked and then, uh, try and get it out on time printing. Um, so which we did, and we, I mean, you know, I still remember me and, uh, our, our layout guy um we would just sit there all night we we for like three weeks we sat there for like nearly i don't know 16 hours a day inputting proofing corrections he wrote him him with me with lots of paper with written up corrections and him on the desktop and i go okay page three paragraph two line six change the comma to a semicolon and and but it would it was yeah, it's a big 400-page book, and there was yeah. a lot of typos. I mean, it was my first thing, so I, I know that created loads of them, but there was loads <laughs> already. Um, and so literally to the deadline, literally like the day before we were supposed to release it, we were working, you know, 11 o'clock at night. We were, you know, drinking coffee, getting it finished. Wow. Um, but we got it out. We got it out, yeah. and, you know, with uh, warts and all. But um, And it was very successful and um, sold through... I think it was 30,000 initial units was, you know, sold into distribution be, you know, before the game was released. Amazing. Um, and literally um, two days later on January 28th, uh, 2008, Games Workshop decided they weren't going to do role-playing games and board games anymore. And it would be far easier if they just licensed it all out to somebody like uh, Fancy Flight Games. Yeah. Uh, you know, which I completely understand was, uh, yes, it would be a lot cheaper to do that. And um, and so uh, my position suddenly went from <laughs> something to nothing. It was like, there is no job here. The, the entire the entire division is now gone in two days wow. after launching the game. So um, at that point, um, I felt that my time at GW is probably over. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I left and went back into the real world for a while. Um, no kidding. And, um, so yeah, and, and that's, you know, back in the real world, eventually at some point I, you know, I was continuing game. I still, I still gamed and went to conventions and did stuff. Um, but it's around that time that, um, Paul and I started talking about, isn't it time? There was a new edition of Call of Cthulhu. This one's about years. It's, yeah. There's, there are problems and, you know, I think we could fix them. And that's, you know, that's, and then that started the next kind of phase really going into, you know, freelancing for Curzio at that point. So I'd be curious, Mike, when um, <laughs> you finished staying up for 16 hours working and then you find out the next day, you know, that's it. Sorry, appreciate it. Did you think that that was it? Your, your time as part of the gaming industry, you, you got a chance to do it and now it's over or were you still wanting to do it? Cause I could imagine walking away from that saying, you know, screw this. Well, yeah, I mean, now, 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 now I've had a taste of it and it was real. You could get paid <laughs> to, to do game stuff. It was kind of like, well, well, you know, but, but again, I now face the problem because 
apart from Games Workshop, there really wasn't anyone else in the UK at that point. I mean, there'd been some other companies, but none of them were really employing full-time people, full-time, paying them an actual salary um, to make it realistic. So I, I kind of figured that, well, unless unless some American games company is going to turn and say, we, we want you, it's not going to happen. And and the likelihood of that happening is really slim. That's, you know, 99.9% that it won't happen. So I kind of just went, well, it was great. I had a great time. And... Um, uh you know i'm still role playing i'm still enjoying it i'm writing my own stuff um i maybe you know maybe i'll do some you know I'll, i mean this was at a time when you know indie games were kicking off and all that kind of thing i was thinking or maybe i'll just start writing some indie stuff and i'll put that out and if it you know goes anywhere it goes anywhere but yeah you know, i'm not going to worry about it um I kind of was thinking about that kind of thing. But again, I was, had a young family, had a new job, I, yep. you know, and um, and um, I had very little time. So I, it didn't really go very far. Um, um, and it was, you know, it, it you know took a while for things, life to kind of bed back into some sort of sense of normality. Um, <clears throat> that, um, that it kind of, you know, that it, that the idea of, um, putting together a new Call of Cthulhu rulebook kind of took shape, really. And um, that came out of a conversation at a convention with uh, Paul, myself, and um, Charlie Crank, who at the time was the, the president of Chaosium. And, um, you How know, does that conversation went, start, Mike? I mean, do you go up and go, your, your game needs some help and we might be able to help? Like, how does that conversation begin? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Charlie knew, knew me and knew Paul a little bit, but knew me. Be, you know, um, through face-to-face contact at cons, he knew that he knew that I'd done the Whisperer. He knew about the Call to Chaos. He knew that I'd done freelance for Chaos and before, so he knew who I was. He knew that right. you know, Call of Cthulhu was my game. Um, so, so I guess in that sense, you know, I'd done I'd done the legwork to kind of be able to have him at least listen to what I had to say, even if he wasn't going to take it seriously. Um, so what uh, the way it happened was that uh, Charlie was down to do a, um, a seminar on kind of you know a state of a state of cursing uh, address on a Sunday morning at this convention at Leicester, and um, so we went to the we went to the seminars we would do, asked some questions and listened to what Charlie had to say, and at the end when you know he was getting up to go and everyone else was leaving, I just said Charlie, could we have a quick chat? I've got an idea to run by you. He went, yes, yeah, sure. So we just sat in this room and said, look, um, have you, what's your thoughts on, you know, doing a new edition of Call of Cthulhu? It's been, you know, over 10 years or more since Sixth Edition came out. And um, is that something you're even contemplating? He went, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Could you do it? And that was the conversation. <laughs> That's so what we he went, said. <laughs> yeah. He, I, again, he, he, I guess he knew us. He knew we had the pas- passion to do it. And and I and I think maybe we were just lucky that we were the first people to ask him. I don't know. Maybe if it'd been somebody else, they'd, they'd isn't be doing that it, something? But, um, and then you know, then we you know, we then sat down and talked about you know what the potentials could be and and um, what we wanted to do. But I mean, uh, it was you know from the word go, it was always um, the game has to be backwards compatible. You can you know you can refresh and change and fix things, but it's got to be backwards compatible. We don't want to. We don't want to you know, a D&D thing, which is a different game coming out called Call of Cthulhu. 
it's got to be the same game and that's fine that's that's what we want to do we don't want to change the game in that sense it's got to play the, it's got to play the same because it's our favorite we don't want to change our favorite game we just want to you know the lessons we've learned over over you know how many years of playing it to to see whether we can you know fine tune some of the uh sharper pointy bits on it really um that's and great. that's really that's and so for like i don't know how many years it took us four years four years on top of our kind of day jobs um you know working on this collaboratively myself and paul until we had a kind of uh an initial kind of version um which then uh, we put to play testing and then you know kind of went from there really that's fantastic. Guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I really want to dive into this new edition of, of Call of Cthulhu and really um, what were what was the way that uh, Mike and Paul uh, approached it? Uh, what are some of the big decisions that they made and how did they make those decisions? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Keith Suderman, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. You'll never mistake me for a competitive player, but I really enjoy the analysis and the advice I get from Tabletop Talk. You should be a patron, too. Head on over to Patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, or just click the link in the show notes below. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is. We won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to some of the original patrons that started us on this journey. Special thanks to Jesse Ellis, Sam Newman, Nick Westbrook, Jim Ortiz, Kevin Smith, Keith Suderman, Matthew Riddle, Dane Leergaard, Jeremy Peace, Bookie Gunner, Chris Blue, Voslav, Kim Otto Nielsen, Rolf Randall, John Haas, Cody Hyatt, Michael Roper, Ambrose Ingram, Pudgy Hobbit, Kaiser and Crimson, Brandon Sommer, Jason Reddy, Jason Burry, Kylie Woodland, Brian Schooner, Alan Voltz, and Owen. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis, and I appreciate it. Now, Mike, I have never made a new edition of a game, uh, so I can't, I'm not sure whether this question is a good question or not, but in my mind, um, if you're going to make 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, it seems to me there's two things. One, identifying problems in 6 that need to be fixed. And then two, what can we do to make it even better, right? So adding to it and fixing it. Um, so I'd be curious, what, what needed to be fixed in your mind? When uh, you and Paul sat down and said, you know, this is getting old, it's showing its age, there are some problems that need to be addressed. Do you remember what some of those were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
the very first thing we did, we, we met up. I lived in Nottingham still, and Paul lived in Milton Keynes, so about an hour away. Um, so the very first thing I did when we we started, was I drove down to Milton Keynes on the Saturday, we got the six edition rule book out, and we literally sat side by side, turning every page of the rule book and going, that's good, that's brilliant, that's no problems there, that's where we've got a problem. And we just went through every page. And one of the things, you know, one of the things, you know, it always been my bugbear with six edition was was that it, it wasn't very well organized. It was kind of a bit all over the shop. And if you were new to the game, it was kind of a nightmare. You know, where, where's why is the pages? Why are there pages on combat rules here? And then three chapters along, there's all these optional combat things. They've got why aren't they together? Yeah, you know, that, it was that kind of really silly kind of stuff. That, and it, it, because it had organically grown through the additions that had been added to, but never really reorganized and stripped back down and rebuilt. It was just been one of those things, you know. And um, so that was for me, number one is, if we want this game to be accessible to new people, it needs to be better organized. It needs to be a clearer kind of linear journey through the book, you know, a beginning and an end. So that was one of the things we kind of, you know, kind of identified. But there was a lot of things that really we knew already because we, we were playing it week after week for you know, however many years. Um, so things like um, the grappling rule, it, you know, at the sixth edition, go get a, get a group of you know, keepers together and ask them to explain the grappling rules, and everyone <laughs> would give you a different answer. And it's just it's just the reality of it, you know. Everyone why, would like, why do why do role playing games have such a hard time with grapple? I hear that like I've talked to so many designers, and I'm like, what did you struggle with? And they're like, the grappling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so one of, it's one of those things. So, so there are things like that. Um, there was insanity. I mean, what Colin Cleaver had was a sanity mechanic, which told you when you go insane. That's really where the mechanic stopped. There was nothing to tell you what you did after that point. It was very kind of hand wavy. And um, in our experience, um, which was not only home groups, but also playing with many people, many conventions, um, was that when a character went insane, whether temporarily or indefinitely, it was a real crapshoot. It was like, are they going to role play this in character? Are they going to have a, a silly half an hour where they just act stupid? Are they going to be a problem for the entire game where they now decided that they need to kill all of the player characters? Because it could be any of those because there was no, there was no codification to it. Uh, and so, um, and partly that for me, that's kind of where Call of Duty, Call of Duty got a bad name because it was kind of like, well, people are being silly when their characters are insane which doesn't reflect well on the game. Right. And, and it doesn't, um, fit, it doesn't fit the feel. No. And, it, and, and yeah, it, it just, it didn't, you know, and, but, you know, having said that, you know, plenty of people were doing it really coolly and doing it in, in a way that was great, but, but it allowed for the interpretation, interpretation to be anything. Um, and so we felt that there was a, it needed, there needed to be some kind of definition to what, insanity actually meant in the game in terms of mechanics and in terms of advice to gms and players so that was that was one area um the other areas was our kind of old bugbear with with basic role play brp games 
was because they were based on a, a I go, you go system. You know, I rolled to hit, you rolled to hit. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, which, which let's face it, tended to translate to, I miss you, you miss me. I miss you, you miss me. <laughs> and, you know, 10 minutes later, we're still missing each other and nothing's happened. And now the whole table is bored. Right. Um, so we felt that, you know, could we get combat shorter? Could it be a more dynamic? Um, so that was one thing we identified. I think it was Paul who particularly identified chases by saying, you know, there's a massive chase in Shadow of Rinsmouth and uh, that kind of stuff. And it's just not in the game. You know, there have been chase mechanics before, but they've always been kind of optional. They've always been kind of a, a kind of maybe in a supplement, but never really in the rule book. And at most, it's been it's been an opposed X role, if if anything, on the resistance table. There's never really been any kind of dynamism to it, and so that was one area that Paul was very keen to um, explore and see whether we could make chases as interesting a thing in the game as combat. Because you know, when, when in any role playing game, as soon as you enter combat, you start playing a different mini game, don't you? Um, and um, and similarly for chases, it was like, well, could could there be something that would work with the rules that did that? So those are kind of the big things. Um, and um, and over the course of four years of, you know, um, Paul trying out things, me testing the rules, me throwing ideas at Paul and saying, why don't you do that? Why don't you know? Why, why don't we use luck to adjust roles? You know, why don't we make that a, a player agency kind of thing? And, and, uh, and then Paul coming up with the things like pushing and 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 all that kind of stuff. Uh, and over four years, we kind of you know collaborated and kind of honed these down. I mean, some of the early stuff was really way out there and, yeah. and was, did not look like Call of Cthulhu. But we were kind of testing ideas really, and then bringing them back or throwing them out and going, "No, that's just not going to fit." And or this this will fit, but it needs to look more like a Call of Cthulhu mechanic rather than a you know, something else. And, right, um, right. So that was, you know, it was very much a long phone calls every week, sending documents back and forwards, lots of notes on each other's work, um, arguments and agreements and all the usual kind of things when two people are working on the same thing, they both <laughs> feel very passionately about. So, you know, yeah. I'd be curious, Mike, as you and Paul were working on that, um, do you have a sense of when you started to get over the hill, right? So you're, it's uphill battle. You're going through the sixth edition book. You're breaking down. This is, this is garbage. This is great. You're, you're tossing out ideas, some crazy stuff that you keep, some crazy stuff that you don't keep and you refine and so on and so forth. When did you feel like suddenly it was going, you were going downhill? You're like, this, this is coming together now. Like I have a feeling of that. Was there, was there a breakthrough or was it just so gradual? You didn't even notice when you kind of had turned the corner. <laughs> this is this is a different mind this is how our different mindsets work paul is very kind of um ideas are creative and um kind of will keep will keep messing with ideas and quite contentedly and keep going and keep tinkering and keep tinkering whereas because i mean partly because you know i'd already worked in publishing i kind of knew there was a deadline at some point <laughs> so I was I was the project manager in that sense of going to Paul. Right. We, we now need to finish this off. We need to, you know, are you? Yeah, you know, I'm happy with the combat rules. Are you happy with the combat? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's they're done, then, aren't they? Let's not tinker anymore <laughs> and move on and get this other bit finished. And and so I was kind of the uh, you know the voice of reality and reason sometimes, which you know Paul will obviously reflect back on it sometimes and go, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I, that that 
our, we complement our styles in, in that way. That um, um, and so because um, obviously we had uh, this. Me and Paul were working on this, and I don't know year three or whatever. And uh, we got to nearly it was nearly summer of the third year. We kind of had a rule set, you know. We felt we kind of had the basis now that you know all the kind of big stuff had been done. Um, and uh, we had very little coming back from chaos. <laughs> Did they still want it? Did, <laughs> You know, are we gonna are we gonna send it to them? They're gonna go. No, sorry, guys. We're, we're I'm sorry. Who are you? This, who are you? We expected this two years ago. No, no, no. We've we've already got seventh editions written. Forget it. Go we're away. Eighth edition, guys. Yeah, we we had no idea because um, unfortunately, uh, one of the things one of the things of the time was uh, the communication wasn't great. Um, so Paul had decided anyway that he was going to go to US Gen Con that year. Um, I couldn't go. He was going to go. And so we agreed. What we would do is uh, we would get the rules kind of, you know, kind of like a um, self, you know, self desktop published into a, uh, just into a little booklet and get that printed. So we could literally give, you could give Charlie a copy of the, the rules and go, here is where we are. And basically force the issue by, you know, by, you know, sort of literacy by saying, do you want it? Yeah, you still yeah. want it. So he went off to Gen Con and uh, had, you know, gave Charlie the the working rule set. And um, Charlie's already, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Carry on, yeah, yeah. Whenever you're ready. Um, and so at that point, we said, right, okay, we've got a working rule set. We can now play test it. So we we organised a worldwide play test. Uh, you know, uh, I know, I know how many people. Certainly, more than a hundred groups around the world. Wow got the playtest rules and we gave them a few months to, you know, pull it apart and tell us what, tell us what we'd done wrong. And, um, and then we did a, we did a, you know, we had their kind of their playtest feedback, but I also did a survey across the playtesters asking some, because I wanted to make sure I had some real key questions I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask, does it feel like you've been playing Call of Cthulhu for me, which is the number one question. And then we, you know, any and things that we were unsure about, like um, the whole luck spending rules. Um, he said, you know, did you did you find that they worked? Did you like them? Think, and so we would ask these questions, very pertinent ones, about some of the changes we'd made or uh, kind of the direction we wanted to go. Uh, and so that survey went out, and it was a, re- and I have to say, I'm re- really pleased with the places really thankful to places because nearly all of them filled out the survey as well as sent it awesome. feedback so, so that was fantastic um and it really helped the survey because um overwhelmingly everyone came back with that yes this felt like we were playing call of cthulhu so it was like yes job number one yeah, biggest, big deal biggest yeah. thing we need to do we need we you know that's great um and then but it also really highlighted what were potential issues like and i, I used look as a really straightforward one um there's the, the ability to spend your luck points in the game um me and paul were umming and ahhing about it going like because we we'd had our personal feedback from the groups we'd been playing and some people liked it some people didn't and we couldn't get a sense of it we couldn't get a sense of whether this was people really didn't like it or really did like it and of course the results came back from this massive survey and it literally literally was 50% of people liked it. 50% of people didn't like it. But you're kind of like, well, that, what do we do now? 
Yeah. So that's, that's when I said, you know what we do? We make it an optional rule because everyone that likes it can use it. And everyone yeah. that doesn't like it can just ignore it. And it's not going to be a problem. And so that by putting that in in that way allowed us to then to look at some of the other optional stuff and go, actually, at the end of every chapter, if there's some kind of cool rules that we think are kind of cool but aren't yep. really cool, and, that, and maybe um, some people, you know, some of the old grognards may not like some of the new stuff, we yep. make this optional and, and people can choose. And, and, we, and we literally make what, you know, a role-playing game that's, you know, 30 years old at the time, what it should be is a toolkit. And we, you know, here's the core rules we all agree on. Everyone can do this. Then here's the optionality you can tweak to make the game how you want to play it. And so that's the kind of, you know, direction we went um, of, uh, of uh, you know, trying to make it as much as a uh, a toolkit for, for people as, you know, if you wouldn't, you know, that was just seemed the most sensible way to do it. Well, it's such a date. I mean, I, I admire you and Paul so much because it, it's such a dangerous proposition because first of all, and you knew this because it was true for you, you're dealing with a beloved thing, right? Like people, yeah. there, there's, there, I've never talked to anybody, Mike, that I go, hey, do, do you like Call of Cthulhu? And they're like, yeah, it's fine. They either love Call of Cthulhu, like love Call of Cthulhu, or it's just not their game. Yeah. Um, so you've got just a passionate group of people that were playing sex that were abusing it the way you guys did playing it all the time. And, you know, you you come in and you, you know, want to make some changes. You want to improve some things. But it sounds to me like and I'll use the luck system as an example and tell me if I'm off here. Like when I hear you tell me like half people, I loved it, by the way, as soon as I saw that, I fell in love with it. But now that hearing you talk about it, I realize it's almost a style thing, isn't it? Right. Like depends yeah. on how you run the game and what type of game you're running. Like when I read it, when I first got seventh edition, because I, I think it was like fourth edition was where it, what was, I was playing before then. I was like, oh, that's that's nice. That's now I get to see, you know, that for me, it fixed some problems. Right. But I could definitely see depending on the type of game you're running, it wouldn't. And do you get a sense that maybe that's what it was, why it was such a split? I think I, I think very much as a style thing. And, and, you know, there's there's plenty of people who have been playing Call of Duty since it came out. And to be yeah. frank, um, whatever whatever the rule set kind of was in their head when they started playing, despite whatever edition they claimed to be playing, yep. <laughs> they've been playing their version of Call of Cthulhu for 20 plus 30 years. So true. And it looks like no actually published edition. Because what, i tell you what's amazing. Because we actually, we made ourselves read page, you know, end to end, sixth edition. We, and, and we we would... Because we were just like everyone else. You are we playing it playing, wrong. <laughs> we were playing Call of Cthulhu that, that we'd remember. You know, I've read the rules years ago. I knew, I re, you know, I could refer to it when I needed to. But, I, yeah, I know BRP. I can run this game. And I've been doing it very successfully for some years, just like everyone else. Yeah. Um, but when you read the rules and go, like, did you realize there was a rule for this? <laughs> and Paul would look at me and go, like, no. And then he'd find something else and go, like, crikey. Do you, I don't even remember ever reading that. And so one of the things I, you know, I still, you know, I'm reminded of to this day from various conversations I have is people um, glance at rules. They don't read them. Very rarely read them. It's funny. There's a, there was a Twitter uh, thread the other day that Paul was involved in. Uh, somebody was talking more generally about role playing and uh, talking about um, do you, you know, um, what's, which books have really good kind of 
GM advice and player advice in them. And Colin Cthulhu got mentioned uh, along the lines of, uh, is there anything, which books might would be good, uh, that have some good advice in for Call of Cthulhu? Um, or what advice would you suggest, Paul? And Paul went, well, me and Mike put all of our ideas into the rule. Wrote it in down. The chat. There's a chapter called Playing the Game, which is exactly this thing. And 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 Paul went, you know, um, I kind of get the impression that, you know, the person he was talking, you haven't read that. And, and he went, no, I didn't realize. <laughs> no, no, no. Now I've been playing the game seventh edition, but I, I, I hadn't bothered reading that chapter. I didn't realize it was there. Or oh, I'll now go and look now you've told me. And it's, it's surprising how many people will glance through the rules or read them I'm once and then not, not take them in and then quite happily go on a forum and tell you what you've done wrong <laughs> or what, why the rules don't work or why, why haven't you put this advice in. And you, me and Paul just screaming at the PC going, I but bet. it is in there. Read the bloody rule book. <laughs> but, you know, there you go. That's life. So yeah, oh, I, can, I, can, yeah. I just have this image of somebody, <laughs> somebody on a forum somewhere going, I have no idea, you know, like I, I have so much trouble running ch- uh, chases in Call of Cthulhu. And you're like, there's a whole section on running chases. Have you even tried to read? That's amazing. That's amazing. But I got to tell you, Mike, I, I've been guilty of it, man. It, it's yeah, it's really, it. yeah. And, and I loved your phrasing of saying, we all glance at rules. Very rarely do we read them. God, that, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> that was so very true. <laughs> that was very, very true. I felt attacked, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very guilty of it. Um, so, boy, oh boy, you send you send this thing out, and and for those of you listening, um, a lot of you aren't as old as I am, and, and as old as Mike is, and I, and I don't know if you realize, like you know, there's there's D and D and there's Call of Cthulhu, like those were and are the biggies, right? The big the big giants in the room, and um, it, and 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 so beloved by it, like. How scary was it to to have that thing unleash on the world to finally push it out and have Chaosium saying we have a new edition and having all of these people going oh you're gonna you know screw up my game is this gonna be uh, you know Warhammer third edition is this gonna be uh, you know fourth edition D and D what are you doing what was it like when it got out there it was it was very weird because um, ah it, it, there was a lot of people who had already made their mind up. Yeah, that, you know, all they needed to know that there was a new edition, and we'd changed a few things that they'd already made their mind up before they played it or read it that it was bad. Um, and so there was a, you know, there was a sizable proportion of uh, old players who decided it was bad before they even come out, and you know, would moan on about it and change for change's sake. You know, it was a great line, and um, and then there was a load of other people that play tested it who had come back and actually. That's we really like it. We, we're still using the playtest stuff. We're continuing to use it. It's great. We can't wait to come out. Um, and so it goes out and it kind of gets you know, pretty good reviews. Uh, there, are, there is a handful of people. I mean, you know, there, and there are certain forum sites, Call of Cthulhu, where they would, they would loiter and lurk together and, you know, uh, <laughs> have, a, have a big moaning party about how, how we've ruined their fun. Like, well, I'm not sure how we've ruined your fun. You mean we've not told you don't have to burn all your old rule books now. Um, you could just carry on playing how you've been doing for 30 years. And to be frank, you weren't using a rule book then either. You were making your note <laughs> as you went. Um, you could just carry on doing that. But apparently, you know, we've caused some great offense and you can no longer live, you know, with the fact there's a new edition out. And um, so there's some very silliness like that. But I mean, that was the minority of people. 
Um, and that kind of had this kind of, you know, that kind of went on for, you know, a handful of years. There was this kind of group who, you know, weren't going to budge. And it's like, that's fine. I don't care. You know, you, you don't need to buy it. You don't want to buy it. That's great. Carry on. If you're playing Call of Cthulhu, I'm pretty happy. It doesn't really matter what edition. If you're playing seventh, great. But, you know, if you're still playing six, get on with it. And to be frank, as I keep saying, you weren't playing six, really, were you? You were playing, you were playing whatever <laughs> edition exactly right. you'd made in your head. But anyway, um, but what I noticed pretty quickly, um, and this kind of obviously grew and became more noticeable as time went on, was the number of people returning to Call of Cthulhu and people coming to Call of Cthulhu who had never played before because of seventh edition? So I, I you know, I, I, I knew, I, you know, I knew a bunch of gamers my age who Call of Cthulhu wasn't their game, but yep. they liked, they liked playing at conventions, they liked playing it once in a while, but at some point they'd got switched off from it. It just wasn't their thing anymore. And some of those people, um, you know, came into the playtest because you know they wanted to see what was going on. Others kind of picked up the book afterwards. Um, and I would go to a convention. I would bump into these people. I kind of, you know, were more acquaintances and friends. Um, we would turn around and go like, what you've all done is great. I, I really like the game now. I, I, didn't, awesome. I couldn't get on with it before. But what the things you've done in it allow me to kind of play the game I want to play. Um, and so for me, that was really cool. But for me, the biggest success was actually new people were coming to the game. Because I think the game had got to a point where, it, you know, it was still a very popular game, but it had kind of stagnated. The, the, the material wasn't very new, new player friendly. Yep. And Call of Cthulhu is one of those games. It's like D&D. It's a gateway game, as I call it. It's like, you know, yes, there are a lot of D&D players who go on to then play Call of Cthulhu or they come into role playing through some other game and then discover Call of Cthulhu. But equally, there are plenty of people that come to role playing through Call of Cthulhu. No so it's question. one of those games that actually attracts you know new new gamers, um, and so seeing that happening was for me like the biggest success really because obviously yeah. my number one is I I love the game I'd like the game to continue being played and run, um, and so <laughs> that can only happen if new people start playing the game because at some point all of us old people will eventually we will die disappear. off <laughs> we will die off and so will the game. So actually um, putting out an edition that, that kind of re, it basically revitalized the line. Um, and so I was seeing that through obviously sales, but also yeah. through the kind of, you know, the, the, the forums and turning up on forums where you would expect it to turn up and young people, young people talking about Call of Cthulhu, which was uh, God forbid, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So that's really what, what kind of um, I, I saw happening in, in that way. So I'm going to share my story real quick, Mike, because I think you might appreciate it because it touches on uh, the success. Um, so I get back into role playing again and I, you know, Call of Cthulhu was one of my favorites. It was Call of Cthulhu and Chill. Those were my, that's how old I am, by the way. Um, I just loved them, right? Loved them. And one gave me one type of horror and one gave me another type of horror. Um, you know, I get back into role playing. And I'm like, I really like horror has always been my favorite. And, and even when I'm not playing horror, I'm still playing horror because I, I inject that into, into almost every game I play. So I ordered seventh edition um, and I got the slip case and the whole thing. And I was just like, Jesus, this is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Right. And, but I got, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I, I sat down and I was just like, like, I thought it was going to be, I went with a mentality. This was taken from previous editions. Like I got to study for my exam now. 
Like this is going to be an arduous process of me digesting this all again and taking this all in and getting it all sorted in my head. And I start flipping through it and one, it's beautiful. Um, and it wasn't the previous editions weren't beautiful, but there was a new obvious new attention being put upon how it looked. Um, and then I was just like, oh yeah, what? Oh, wow. Like this isn't that bad. And to a certain degree, I wondered, had my memory fogged, right? Did I remember it being kind of a, kind of a pain in the ass game a little bit before and now it's not. And it's really interesting that, that you guys, that that was something that you focused on was making it accessible and it worked. That's, it's amazing. Well, thanks for that. I mean, uh, that was, you know, that was, as you say, the, the intent, um, yeah. was to, was to, to make it play like it always played, but just try and stream, you know, as I always say, it's trying to streamline a few things. Combat yeah. would go a bit quicker. Yeah, you know, because combat was now an opposed role, something should happen. Uh, you know, by the end of round one or two, <laughs> somebody should have been hit. You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. just to kind of move things along. So yes, yeah. Um That's great. So that was so that was nice to 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 sort of see that kind of revitalization happen. And um and of course you know, around this time, you know, well, prior to actually some vision officially coming out, obviously the management team changed at Carousium and uh, there was a um, uh, a new, uh, what's the word for it, a, a kind of a fresh outlook, a kind of a, a new enthusiasm, which obviously myself and Paul had kind of brought that in with us with right. the edition, but obviously then to have that backed up with the management team with a lot of, you know, new aspirations and creativity. Uh, was 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 you know a fantastic kind of meeting of of minds and in, in the timing of that so so that was uh, that was very fortunate um, in that way. It's like I love it when people really you know, they, and this is what they did early on. And occasionally it comes upon a forum and somebody has a real moan about you know why you know the rule book is like four hundred and fifty pages long. There's no need you know just so big, too many rules, and you kind of go, I've. Just, qualify your statement and yes there is a section of the rule book that contains rules across um you know three or so chapters which are the core rules everything else is added value it's a load of monsters spells scenario plots stuff on how to play it's not all rules and people but people love to kind of go oh it's 400 pages of rules no it's it's that much rules, that much, <laughs> that much added value. You know? exactly. I, I, I I, Have I, you read the book? That's what it comes back to. Yeah, basically, yeah, it comes back to that. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. funny. So, guys, we're going to take a quick break, and before we get back from this, or when we get back from this break, um, so <laughs> as I was going out there and talking to people, and I and I was starting to have conversations about, you know, boy, the Call of Cthulhu is is not exactly what I remember it to be, and I really I like it better now. And a few, more than a few people said to me, do you like Call of Cthulhu? But have you tried Pulp Cthulhu? Because that, I've learned, has its own subsection of fanatics as well. And uh, I, saw, I, I figured out why when I picked up the book. So we're going to come back. I want to talk to Mike about Pulp Cthulhu and where it came from and how it was made. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. 
Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So, Mike, as you were, you know, finishing up seventh, working on seventh, where was Pulp Cthulhu in your mind? Was it not even present whatsoever? Was it something that was tickling the part of your brain? Were you taking stuff that you found in seventh and go, this doesn't quite fit. Let's set it aside. And that becomes Pulp, Pulp Cthulhu. I'm, I'm interested to hear, like, where the seeds of Pulp Cthulhu come from. Um, they come from two different, completely different sources. When we were doing the seventh edition rules, um, there was a section that got created that were pulpy rules. There was, was, but it was only a handful. It was just like, you know, maybe you could do, um, I'm trying to remember how they were now, what they, what they even covered. Uh, but there was, there was literally, you know, a few paragraphs that were kind of like, if you want a more pulpy style of play, maybe you'll double the hit points of your character, that kind of thing. It wasn't anything big. Um, so they existed and they kind of sat around in the rule book uh, before obviously anything happened with it. And during the Kickstarter, um, Kerosene were, you know, flailing around for things they could add as stretch goals. And they go, well, what would it be cool? And um, Pulp Cthulhu is one of those kind of mystical books because Pulp Cthulhu was mentioned in uh, an old Call of Cthulhu book, you know, I don't know, 10 plus years before the Kickstarter, coming soon. And it never came soon. It never came. Right. It just, it was, everyone got excited. Oh, Pulp Cthulhu. And then for 10 years, nobody heard a thing. It was just tumbleweed. And so uh, uh, during the Kickstarter, it was like, well, we could put Pulp Cthulhu out. And I went, and me not, because obviously at this time I was a freelancer, I wasn't working yeah. for Cursium. I, I, you know, obviously in my head, went, oh, the manuscript is sat there. It probably just needs a bit of a polish and an update. And uh, <laughs> we could get Pulp Cthulhu. That'd be cool. Yeah. So I go, yes, of course. Yeah. Let's do that as well. And so it kind of got, it was in the Kickstarter and the, obviously the stretch goal was met. So it became part of the project. Um, and um, so, <laughs> so cut forward, I, I, I clear my desk of everything else and go like, oh, I need to get this Pulp Cthulhu book done because obviously it's one of the Kickstarter rewards, you know, that's next priority. So can, can, can you send start. it over to me so I can look at it? <laughs> so yes, yeah, so send me what you have. And I get, I get a link. <laughs> I get a link to a uh, a folder on the shared drive, and uh, and it's you know it's called Pop Cthulhu, and I go and I go like I'm looking at I'm literally like looking around this haunted house, going like, where 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 what what? Is, I'm sorry, the there? file didn't come through. <laughs> and and you know there are there are a handful of word documents, and there are what there is it says one one scenario. It's got a, a massive scenario, um, and there's um, and there's some there's a file that kind of pulp rules. And then there's a big file which looks like the most complete one um, about the the Vanguard Club, written by James Lowder, in fact. And um, 
I, 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 okay, okay, so that's so I get okay. That's a scenario. I don't need to worry about that yet. That can just sit there. That's great. But great, I've got one scenario at least. Uh, there's some background stuff on the Vanguard Club. That's cool. That looks okay. Put that over there. Okay, open the main one, which is default rules. Okay. Ah, right. So this is just not in any way written. It's just some ideas, and and um, it you know it's literally like. Imagine, you know, somebody's day one, they go like, oh, we want you to write pulp rules. And they've opened their desktop, you know, Word document, and they've literally, for the day, just put some ideas down, as in, oh, maybe it, more action um, <laughs> some sort of role for jumping off buildings. And literally, that was it. And it was just like, wow. And I kind of went, this isn't any, there are no rules there. In fact, yeah, there was only one rule. It was just like, if uh, players want to do something really pulpy, um, get them to make a skill roll. But that's already a rule. It's not. It's not. It's not a new rule. It's already. Yeah. Let's call it a feeling. Um, so um, I kind of took a big sigh and went, "Okay, so we've got these pulp rules in the rule book. Let me take them out of the rule book, Isn't and that, that can something? be the starting point. And that literally, then you know, the three or four kind of pulpy style rules we put in there as an option." I you know, said to Paul, I'm just going to remove all of that and put it into Paul. He went, yeah, good idea. So so then um, I sat down and then worked out, you know, what is pulp? And, of course, the number one problem with pulp is no one knows what it is. Or, more rightly, everyone thinks it's what they think it is. And um, there is no definitive answer other than pulp is pulp fiction of the 1920s, you know, 40s. That's what, it, that's what it means. It's pulp paper. Um, uh, it happens to be some fiction that was written on pulp paper. That's what pulp <laughs> means. It doesn't mean anything in gaming terms other than a kind of a vague sense of action. Um, well, it's, it's, it's like, what is it they say about porn? Like, I, I can't define it for you, but I know when I see it, right? Um, it's got a very similar aspect to it. Same with pulp, yeah. Yep. So the number one thing I, I thought about was that I can't, I can't, if I put down what I think is pulp, everyone's going to turn around and say, I've got it wrong. <laughs> And, and, yeah. and they're gonna, I'm going to get moaned at. So that, that ain't going to work. So that's when I came up with the idea of actually this needs to be a sliding scale. You need to be able to play Call of Cthulhu and turn a dial and add a little bit of pulp or yeah. turn it full and have it full pulp, whatever that may look like. So, I, so the very kind of day one was, okay, it needs to be a sliding scale of some kind. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but right. that's got to be the basis of it. And then I just, you know, work through and I, I kind of you know built off some of the rules in seventh edition about you know using look about you know, we could do more with look we could make it more of a utility thing um pulps about larger than life characters so having that scaled into the character generation with pulp archetypes of you know there are certain types of character that that, that come out of pulp why don't we make sure that players understand what they are and they can choose I want to be the fighter. I, it's kind of like, you know, choose your class, really. But it's, you know, I want to be the, um, I want to play the shadow. I want to play such and such detective. So trying to, you know, come up with um, generic archetypes that we could mesh into the system. Um, and then, you know, pulp characters are normally good at least one thing. You know, they are kind of, they're not superheroes, but they're they're kind of better than your average Joe. And, Cthulhu is about your average Joe, really. You know, okay, you might be a, an expert librarian or scientist, but you are, in theory, average people. So 
introducing the kind of pulp talents to give people an edge, uh, something they something they were good at or known for that they could build their character around. So that seemed like a natural kind of fit. Um, and of course, you know, if you've got larger than life player characters, pulp is all about larger than life villains, you know, and Cthulhu's already got some pretty cool larger than life yeah. villains, but actually bit, yeah. <laughs> turn the dial up for pulp ones and really, you know, make them, you know, the evil cultist mastermind of a, with a thousand faces and all that kind of really kind of, you know, go back to the source material and, and, you know, try and have fun with that. And yeah. um, so that was, it was really kind of instilling, you know, the ideas I had for what I thought pulp was broadening that with actual, you know, going back and looking at the real pulps and looking at the differences and looking at the ideas that came from that, the kind of characters and the villains and, I'm thinking, well, what would be, what makes it called a Cthulhu, but what twists it into, we would kind of recognise it, say it's Paul. Well, killer robots. You know, the Mego make robots and science and all that kind of thing. Why can't they make killer robots? You know, why can't there be time travel, which there is with the Yithians? Well, if there's time travel in Paul, that would mean dinosaurs. So why can't there be <laughs> dinosaurs? You know, so... Uh, it was just taking the idea and pushing it. You know, you take, with Cthulhu, you knew kind of where the limit was. And with Pulp Cthulhu, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to go past that limit because that's called Cthulhu. I'm going to push it into kind of, and I just had the kind of motto, bigger than, bigger, bigger, bigger is better, more wild, more wacky. Um, and because with the dial, the idea so that you big. could scale it, Yep. It meant that you could go big and wacky, but if you that wasn't your style, you just dial it back down and not have that. Yep. Um, so it allowed me to kind of, you know, really kind of play around with the the genre in that way. Um, and, uh, and one thing I've said is where did you know where the idea for Pulp Cthulhu actually originally come from, which is um, is worth a mention because it came from Dustin Wright, who still works for Curse, who is the oldest in terms of the longest um, serving Kersman employee, Dustin um, is, uh, looks after our retail distribution. And Dustin looks after our retail distribution and uh, makes sure uh, products end up on your doorstep. Uh, they end up in the game stores. He's kind of one of the most vital yeah, people kind in Kersman because <laughs> without, without him, you know, all you'd have is a few PDFs. So, um, and Dustin's in there, you know, a long time. And back in, I think Dustin literally went to see Indiana Jones one day and walked out going, well, that's kind of like Call of Cthulhu, but either way, it could be Pulp Cthulhu. And, that uh, and that, that's where the idea was born. So, you know, all credit to Dustin to, uh, for being the one who kind of, kind of realised actually this could fit with what we call Call of Cthulhu. Um, it just took a long time to be birthed. Yeah, yeah, it took a little bit. So I love that idea of the dial or the sliding scale, Mike. So I, I, I want to, if you go back in time to the Cult of Keepers and how you were running games back then and how some of those Cult of Keepers running the games then, and let's say one is strict Call of Cthulhu, no pulp, 10 is, you know, the, <laughs> dials all the way up, we're going to go fight dinosaurs. Was there anybody that was already playing around out of your Cult of Keepers or even yourself that was starting to push those limits a little bit and push into pulp? Um, or was this really all new territory uh, for you and for that group going, if going back and looking at it? I'm wondering how much of it had already seeped in. 
I think elements had. I mean, one of the scenarios, one of the very first scenarios, I didn't write this one, uh, somebody else contributed it, was about time-traveling dinosaurs. You're on some country estate in England, and these kind of, um, you know, um, uh, carnivorous dinosaurs were popping up and murdering people, and you were finding their bodies, and not knowing, it's a werewolf. No, 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 it's a dinosaur, time-traveling dinosaur. Um, so things like that kind of kind of seeded in, I guess, but I hadn't, I never, I mean, to be honest, I never thought about them in, in with the word pulp. I just thought, oh, that's that's a cool idea. It's a bit wacky. And um, and so there were, I think, you know, some scenarios that came out through the Cult of Keepers that were kind of a bit more, a little pulpier. And again, it would come down to the, the person who's writing them. Some people tended to be more pulp focused, even though they didn't know it. Others were more kind of, you know, grim and dark. Um, and I, I tended to be kind of in the middle, but I, but I also, um, I'm, a, I, I'm one of these people, I can't be, I cannot be horrific on a Sunday morning at 10, at a 10 o'clock game. It, <laughs> it doesn't work. I can't, I can't make an atmosphere of horror at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It just doesn't work. So with running games at conventions, because of, you know, the needs to, you know, I'd find myself on a Saturday or Sunday morning or even afternoon running a game of Cthulhu. You try and make it, you know, scary-ish, but actually it becomes, it, 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 particularly with me, I see the funny side in things a lot of the time. So a player will do something and I'll just start laughing, going like, really, are you doing that? Really? <laughs> and, and it becomes, and it becomes a, um, you know, much more of a, a I guess, a, a comedy Cthulhu in a sense, without it being silly. It's it, We try and keep true to the game and the spirit, but you, you find the inherent humour in, the actions of the characters or all the situations they find themselves in we all and we all just have a good laugh and it's a good you know it's a good fun game but it's not gonna it's not alienation and horror you're not you're not walking away quaking in your boots um but we save that for the late night game on a saturday or whatever but um so in that sense being a bit pulpy with those kind of more comedic kind of games was a very natural thing particularly for me i guess as well so that I think, you know, while consciously I hadn't really thought about that, but unconsciously, yeah, I guess there was some kind of, um, you know, some some seeds of that already there in terms of when I came to uh, think about Pulp more, you know, more clearly. That's fantastic. And I got to tell you too, Mike, the, uh, the two hardback um, books that I got that have um, scenarios and things in there, well, campaigns are just, they're brilliant. Like I, I started, I, both of them, I started reading it. And I'm like, I, I need to run this tomorrow. Like this is really exciting um, to, to, to have you know, the, the Pulp Cthulhu built off of and just have that captured the worldwide conspiracy and just have fantastic stuff, man. Fantastic stuff. So guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I'm going to take advantage of that we have got a person who for a couple of years now has been running Call of Cthulhu and running, running Lovecraftian horror. And I want to kind of pick Mike's brain a little bit. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed 
to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So if we were to go into Google right now, Mike, and Google Cthulhu RPG, not only do we have everything that's coming out of Chaosium, but it seems like every single game company has got Cthulhu fake, Cthulhu this, Cthulhu that, right? It, it is everywhere. So I'd be curious, like, why do you think that is? Why do you think the Lovecraftian mythos tr- seems to translate to RPGs to the point where people have an appetite for it? Every, every system out there wants to have a touch of this in it. Do you have a sense of what, why that might be? Um. I think um, Cthulhu is a popular kind of um, cultural thing that, you know, that, I mean, it wasn't really there when I started playing called Cthulhu, but, you know, the game, uh, Stuart Gordon's films, you know, movies that come out subsequently, TV shows now, um, it's kind of built the consciousness and people kind of, you know, tentatively kind of crazy things. Um, seems a lot of fun. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, so I think there's a there's a certain kind of cachet that goes with that. There's a certain knowledge that if you stick tentacles in a box, you might sell a few more. Let's be let's be honest. Um, let's put the word Cthulhu on there because it will sell a few more. Uh, and it doesn't hurt that uh, Lovecraft's IP is public domain, so we don't have to pay anyone for it. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm just being honest. And these are these things. I mean, obviously. Um, and for many years paid um, for you know, to, uh, royalties and, and uh, license Lovecraft's IP. And we still, even though that's public domain now, uh, there are plenty of living authors or authors who are still in copyright of the Lovecraft circle and post-Lovecraft circle circle who are still around and in copyright that we pay licensing awesome. to use their material for because as it's only right and fair to do. Um, without going off on one about many other companies that don't do that yep. and maybe need to have a word with themselves. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, all of those things, you know, just being honest, uh, make, make Cthulhu a pop, uh, a, a popular you know, proposal in that sense. Um, and, but of course, you know, people do can see what's good and bad too. You know, it's, it's, it's very, you know, if you're a, uh, you know, let's let's use the term broadly. A call a, or a Cthulhu fan, rather than call a Cthulhu fan, you know, it's pretty clear where something, some most of the time, where this name has been stuck on to sell more, or this name has been stuck on because the people actually wanted to do something really good with it. Right. You know, the, we do get. You know, there's a difference in products, um, and some of the some of the products, some of the board games, uh, some of the stuff is really great. I mean, you know, some of the stuff. Uh, board game stuff that obviously Fantasy Flight now Asmodee uh, have done have been fantastic. You know, I yep. love playing them. Um, some other board games I've played with the word Cthulhu on haven't been so good, you know? Yep. It's, it's, but that's life. You know, that's the same for any role-play property or, or gaming property in that sense. Um, but I think that, you know, Cthulhu has risen in the public consciousness. There was a long time when it was very niche and only, you know, only me and my mates who role-played knew what Cthulhu was, and we were really cool because we knew something that you lot didn't, 
you know, and, and there's plenty of um, there's plenty of little, you know, IP pockets, you know, uh, of things like that where people, you know, it's kind of cool because we're the only ones who know about it. Yeah. But eventually, you know, if it is really cool, a lot of other people come to know about it, and at some point, you have to go, great, more people is good. Um, occasionally, there are some people that don't like more people because they want it to be their thing. <laughs> But, don't get know, me started. They, don't uh, get they me started. Go, they can go and sit in their dark corner with their sad mates and tell sad tales, um, <laughs> and you know, then die off. You know, that's that's not how the world works, I'm afraid. But um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a you know, it, and, and at the end of the day, you know, hand on heart, you know, if I could, you know, double barrel some of the worst offenders out of existence, I would. But right. equally, I'd rather them be there if there's more, you know, love for Cthulhu, the Cthulhu mythos in that sense. I mean, I put, I put that aside from Lovecraft with his, with his baggage and problems. That's a completely it's a whole different thing. thing, man. But yeah. in terms of uh, in terms of having fun with horror, getting you know, having healthy scares, uh, enjoying you know, just like we do with a, a horror fiction or a horror film, have a you know, a good good fun. Um, that's what it's about for me, and that's so. The more of that, the better. You know, more people understand what Cthulhu. I mean, that, there was a time, believe me, when you go, I, 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 I play Call of Cthulhu. People went, what? I know. I mean, forget, I remember forget that about time. just forget about trying to explain what a role playing game was. Just explain what Cthulhu is. And now, well, there's not really a need to do that because people get it. People know what Cthulhu is. You can, buy, you really, can buy you know. Cthulhu plushies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you can turn on turn on HBO and. When I, I, so I had not read, uh, Lovecraft in country, so I was not familiar with the source material. And I remember watching that show going, uh, like I'm watching a role-playing game, like session from session. This is, this is Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> That's what I'm watching. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it yeah. just brought to life. It was, it was incredible. So Mike, as you, you know, you talk about something that's very, very true. Um, I wonder, do you, do you feel like you have an internal litmus test? for yourself is there certain elements that make it to you say yes this is not pasted on cthulhu this what what they're doing with this board game with this take on the role-playing game or whatever this is cthulhu but this doesn't feel like cthulhu to me even though they used the word is there some are, are there some elements that that you use to test that or is it just a gut feeling or like how how do you sort that in your head i mean mainly it's a gut feeling but yeah but when you look into the detail is it it, the, the dividing line is very clearly this. In fact, I was talking to some friends the other night about this. Uh, the dividing line for me is this. Someone has, you know, like, has read the fiction or, or they played Call of Cthulhu and they kind of like it, they love it, but it's not quite right for them. And they've gone away and gone like, oh, you know, I'm going to sit in my bedroom and I'm going to write a new role-playing game because that's what I want to do. And I'm going right. to do it better than, better than you guys. And that's fine because that's what, everyone does um and and that's cool if they come up with their own take that is not call of cthulhu but it's a, it's a different thing you know it's a different system it doesn't try to model call of cthulhu it, it's just their take on you know the cthulhu mythos or horror in gaming that's great because it's their creativity and their originality and you know i you know i will learn something by playing it i will enjoy it it will be cool the other side is I've read and played Call of Cthulhu and now I'm just going to copy it because I right. want to basically do my version of Call of Cthulhu, file the serial number off, and it's basically <laughs> the same game, 
but it's yeah. my version of it. Well, that's fine. You can, I have no problem with you doing that, but why are you trying to persuade people to buy it? Because, you know, back, I mean, because I'm old, I remember a time before the internet, people did that then, and they did that in the privacy of their bedrooms and gaming tables, and you did your hacks, as you would call it now, of your of the system. And that's fine. We all did. I do it. I did yep. it. And that's cool. That's cool. I never expected anyone to buy my thought on it, though, because right. it's just a hack of an existing property. Go and buy the existing property and hack it all you like, but to go and put that game out that's the same thing with the file numbers series, sealed off mm-hmm. kind of like well that's just that's just pants as far as i'm concerned it's like what, <laughs> you know have more respect for yourself go and put write something original go and do something cool and i will applaud you and buy it but when you're just rip, ripping off stuff um it's kind of like well that's for me as a writer that's fine if, you know if it was a fiction if i was a fiction writer the same way i'm sure i'd be the same if somebody just you know rewrote my story it would be the same thing. I'd just go, well, that's plagiarism, isn't it? But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it is in role playing because it's, it's not quite the same thing. But I guess what I'm saying is people being creative and coming up with new expression and new thoughts on things is I, I, I'm 100% behind. And I think that's great because we all, we all get something from that. Where it's just people retooling what's already out there. I, well, I, I don't know what you're, I, I'm not sure what, the benefit is uh, you other, haven't added than, anything. Other, other than to yourself by selling yep. a few things on drive through or whatever it might be. Um, you know, and that's, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to cry about it. And I'm, and, 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 you know, all good luck to you. If that's what you want to do, fine. No, yep. I'm not, I, I am the fun police will not be knocking on your door. <laughs> I've got plenty of other things to get on with. So sure. uh, you ca- you carry on good luck to you basically. <laughs> So, Mike, before we started recording, you and I had a conversation. You'd asked me, you know, about my audience. Um, and I kind of explained to you the origins of the podcast, um, which means that we've got some people listening right now that have never played Call of Cthulhu before. Um, and I'd be curious if they're starting to itch and go, boy, this sounds like something that I might want to do. Have you found any successful tips for first time people? So if someone says, you know what, I'm going to find a Call of Cthulhu game after listening to Mike talk and I'm going to play it. Um, has there been any, uh, advice that has worked for you over time of saying, Hey, this is your first time playing Call of Cthulhu. This is what you should keep in mind. Okay. Um, yeah, I think. I see this question asked a lot on forums and, you know, threads on Reddit and Discord and whatnot. Yep. Um, there's obviously a lot of people, you know, a lot of people play D&D, let's be honest. It's the biggest game. And, and so yep. people may enter, this, enter the game, uh, role-playing games through D&D, and then they go and look for other things to do. Uh, and Call of Cthulhu is one of the things other people come to do. Um, and what... I mean, maybe this, I don't know, I, I may have this wrong, but it seems to me that newer gamers or, or ones who have come into role-playing in the last few years, um, whereas before, it, to us, it just seemed very natural that if you buy a different game, it's going to be a different game. Yeah. And I don't know whether, I don't know why that is, but there's, I see it on this forums. So I see people kind of expecting Call of Duty to be kind of D and D, or to <laughs> play like D and D. And no, it's not. It's not. If I if I put in Call of Duty on the PlayStation, and then I put in um, I don't know, 
the Legend Red of the Elder Scrolls or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Legend yeah, of Zelda, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I will expect a completely different game, yeah. and that's. But sometimes I do see. I think mean, not. I mean, I'm not saying everyone does this, but but I do see this kind of expectation of people kind of go. What do you mean it's not D and D? I thought it was kind of going to be like I thought it was like a role playing game. It is a role playing game. It's just not D and D. It's not. Right. So it's not you know Traveller or whatever old game I'm going to come out with. Um, so I, I think you know come with a come with an open mind is I guess what I'm trying to say with that. Yeah. Come with an open mind and understand as it says on the book's title on the cover, it's a game of horror and mystery, and so it is about plots. It is about story and it is about telling a story. So your character is a part of that story that you help to tell. Mm-hmm. But like every story, it has an ending. And so some stories will go on. You know, you may play a campaign or have the character go on for a long time. But at some point, your character will end. They will yeah. not ascend to another dimension. They will not become a godlike being of infinite power. It is not that game. Yeah. Um, you are playing normal people. And so it, those are, that's the kind of the general advice and about, you know, finding the story and the heart and the heroic in your character who is, you know, a waitress, uh, uh, a teacher, yeah. uh, 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 a crossing guard, whatever it may be. <laughs> finding those, the heart in your character is what it's all about. It is so cool. It isn't about being the librarian. It isn't about being the crossing guard. That's just your job. That's just where you got to in life. Yeah. Now something. Now you find yourself thrust into something unbelievable, horrible, scary, frightening. It's how do you deal with that? That's what Call of Cthulhu is at the heart of its game. It's what your character does, and and uh, and find. I like I say, you know, finding the heart of your character. Yeah. And finding heroism in the face of insurmountable odds is 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 really about you know is about being heroic. How how yep. how, how do you be heroic when you can't win? And that is the infinite, unanswerable question that we seek when we play Call of Cthulhu. And equally, or if that doesn't appeal. As we've talked about before, go and play Pulp Cthulhu and punch evil in the face, <laughs> and that's that's cool too. And, yeah. that, and that and and that, you know one of the things I I I try to get across is that Pulp Call of Cthulhu is is the game that you want it to be because it is so malleable. It is. Uh, it's why there are so many different settings. It's why it fits. You can play. Space Cthulhu, you can play Stone Age Cthulhu, you can play French Revolution Cthulhu, you can play 1920s, modern day. Mm -hmm. They all work because the system is very malleable because it's about the human experience. It isn't about the mechanics of me being better than you in that sense. It's not that kind of game. Um, And ultimately, in the sense of practicality, I would say look at the products we put out there for beginners. Don't jump into the deep end unless you are, I don't know, a masochist. You know, we, we put out a free downloadable quick start that gives you the basics. You can tip your toe in the water. And you know, I'll be the first to say, Call of Cthulhu is not a game for everyone. But if you read the quick start and you kind of get excited, 
it might be for you, so give it a go. Your next step is, is possibly the starter set, which funnily enough is made for people starting the game. It teaches you the basics in a very kind of hands-on way. Um, and you know, and the reason we have these products there is, is to is be, you know, I've I've worked on these to try and make them as easy and accessible for people to get into because I understand that buying a 450-page rule book is not an easy way into a game you know it, it, it's that's that's for when you really know you want to play this game that and that and you, and you are committed but to get to that point you know it is about you know finding your way uh, as easily and as quickly as possible which is why in the starter set the first thing you do is you pick up your dice and you play on your own a solo adventure that while you're playing an adventure to get a feel for do i like this kind of thing it's also teaching you how to play it, teaching the mechanics as you go. So by the time you get to the, the you know, the 20 page core rule book, you kind of know that already. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, scoot through that and then get playing. I mean, that, that, that's the whole point. And um, I'm kind of rambling. I now, I now am rambling on, but that's, I'm going to extend that out a little bit to the keepers out there as well, because I, um, you know, I got, I ordered the whole thing, right? I got the, we got the slipcase books. I got the starter set. I got the whole thing and came in. And, and at first I saw the little, you know, play by yourself scenario. And I'm like, I don't need that. I've, I've played Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> um, I, I was so happy I didn't though. I'm so happy that I walked through it. So even if you're not a player as a keeper, it's phenomenal because it does, it, it steps you all through. And it, what I found is it made it easier to move to the next step it made it easier to read the next thing or i didn't obviously i, I just glanced at the next thing i didn't read it but <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's presented <laughs> in a wonderful way um mike i owe you a huge favor my friend this was fantastic and i really appreciate you making the time oh it's been a, it's been a pleasure and a pleasure chatting craig and uh oh, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to you as most people who know me know so uh it's been uh, an absolute delight and uh, i'm sorry if i have uh, waffled unnecessarily in parts, and uh, you get me going. I'll, one, all, up and I'll, like. I'll, I'll, I'll just keep going. So, uh, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. hopefully, when 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 uh, you know uh, before civilization crashes and the old ones rise, uh, maybe uh, post pandemic, um, you know, when life is back to normal, I'll be back over in the US at things like Gen Con, and Wonderful. and uh, never know, we may. Uh, we may meet in real life. That we might bump into each other. And a tale, a tale to tell from there. <laughs> so, guys, for those of you listening, we're going to have links to everything here in the show notes for you um, to explore this out. Um, and like I said um, and hinted at, if you're new uh, to role-playing or have never played Call of Cthulhu before, go grab those free rules. Um, I'll have them linked in the show notes. And just buy the starter set for me. And if you hate it, then it's my fault because I'm the one that told you uh, to try it. Um, I think that you'll really, really enjoy it. Um, And for those of you who listened all the way to the end, I appreciate you doing that too. So take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you.
Um, so what I'm thinking here, and this is this, I don't think this needs to be long, uh, Mike, is I just kind of, uh, one of the things when I talk to people about Call of Cthulhu is um, they don't quite know what to do with it sometimes. Um, and it seems to be a common question that comes up, like, you know, how do you do it? How do you make something that, you know, you're going to lose. So how do we make this fun? Um, and that's conversations I've had with people saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. Anyway, that's the idea. Yeah. Oh, God, that's crazy, man. That um, is very funny to consume something like that uh, from very fresh eyes that I had. And then to hear, and this is what's why I love these interviews is because I hear like, I hear how the sausage was made because I only took the end product in. Um, oh, sure. If I, I, I don't know what I was going to say now. It's like, you don't need, need to include it. But it... God, that's a great story, Mike. I, I, I do feel I'm rabbiting on a lot, so just shout at me. Uh, that's my job, Mike. You're doing a it's fantastic. I'm just going to um, refill my cup. Yep. No, if you were rambling, I would say something. I'd steer you back. Oh, fine, fine. <laughs> Mike did a lot before he came on to Kaisum and Kaisum. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers well i mean if you're here you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to i do appreciate you sticking around take care